You're listening to The Fallout with Joey Semmel and Drew Gillis. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to week one of The Fallout. We're super excited to start this podcast. It's something we've talked about doing for years and years and years, and now we're doing it. It's finally happening. <laughs> Welcome to The Fallout. The greatest podcast you will ever hear. Ever. <laughs> so, as you know, it's going to be a sports talk podcast. We were able to get this on the radio at Denison earlier this year, but shout out COVID-19, got it off the radio about as quickly as it got on. Um, but here yeah, how we long, are. How long did we last? Like maybe a month? I think we got four shows in. Give yeah. Or take. Yeah. Um, but we're excited to get this started in the podcast area, moving over from the radio area. Um, it's long overdue for people who like sports as much as we do. Yeah. Especially considering how long we've been together in the sports world. Uh, I've been playing baseball since we were about like six or seven years old, something like that. Had a bunch of basketball teams that your dad coached, baseball teams that my dad coached. Uh, yeah, we've been together for a while. And what two areas better to combine than the two areas we're at school for? Me for my sports broadcasting, you for your audio post-production up there at Berkeley. So what? it's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah, it is. I've, I've done some work with films before, editing sound for films, but uh, never with a podcast. So a little different, but you know, pretty easy to pick up on, and I'm really excited to get rolling on this. So you have an action-packed show here this week. We'll talk about the hurdles the MLB needs to jump through in order to get a season actually underway. We have a great interview with Dan Agate, pitcher at the University of Rochester, who have some discussions about the KBO and how much fun their mascots and bat flips and everything like that are. And then finally, naturally, we have some Jordan and LeBron talk uh, in conjunction with The Last Dance. I'd like to think we left the most heated debate for last, too. Yeah, stay tuned all the way through for a great Jordan-LeBron debate. So we will begin this week with the rollout. Discussions between the MLB and the Players Association have begun in order to get some sort of semblance of a 2020 MLB season for this year. And some comments by some guys have riled it up and made it seem like we're not going to get a season. As fans, we hope that isn't the case, but we'll present to you those comments. Blake Snell on his Twitch stream talked about how he was, quote, risking his life in order to play this season. He said he wasn't going to play unless it was a four, for a full salary. And what the owners are asking of the players, they already asked for a prorated salary, so that would mean 50% already because they're going to play around 80 games, which is half of the season. And then they're asking for 33% on top of that in order to make up for the lost revenue from fans and concessions and everything like that. And... When Blake Snell said that, a lot of people weren't too happy because of the timing, and I know you have some thoughts on that. Yeah, I can see from the owner's standpoint why owners would be frustrated, obviously. I can see from a fan standpoint why fans would be frustrated, because they just want a season at all costs. They don't care how we get there. They just want the season to actually start. My issue with the comments isn't really from an owner or a fan standpoint. It's as a person during this quarantine period, I think it comes across as incredibly immature of a guy like Blake Snell, like a Bryce Harper, both of whom are making millions and millions a year to come out and say, I think we deserve ours. It's crazy that we're not going to get all of our money for our prorated salary. We want our money. We deserve our money. All of that. I think it just comes across as very immature. And it's something that nobody wants to hear right now. Not during a time when everyone, not everyone, about 33% of Americans just got unemployed in a one or two month period. No one wants to hear how Blake Snell should be getting all of his $3.5 million for the remainder of the season. I see where you're coming from, but I'm going to have to disagree with you because you got to think about who's gaining this money. Why are we... I think the anger at Snell and Harper and Trevor Bauer, who have been the leaders in making these comments, is misguided, if you ask me, because think about where that anger is directed at. It's directed at the millionaire players instead of the billionaire owners. Why do the owners get a pass from this? They're going to be fine whether they have the concession money or the fan ticket money, whatever. They're going to be fine without it. They could make $0 this year, and they would still be fine because they have billions and billions and billions of dollars. So I think the anger is misguided. The players are just fighting for what they're worth, and 
Trevor Bauer's comments were particularly interesting because there was a dad on his Twitter who responded to his tweet where he was essentially agreeing with Snell um, and said, what do I tell my kid about this, that you only play for money, blah, 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 blah. And Trevor Bauer said, no, you tell your kid, fight for what you're worth. I'm worth my salary. I want it. I'm going to get it is essentially what Trevor Bauer is saying, and that's essentially what Blake Snell's saying. He is risking his life to go out there in a quarantine, and he's risking his career to go out there this year as well because of the degree of difficulty it is to ramp it up like the pitchers did, shut it down like they have now, and then ramp it up again. It's a tough ask by the owners to ask them to then get rid of more money when they've already agreed to it. For the owners, there is one stat that I want to point out that I saw the other day. I actually have a hard time believing this stat. Uh, but ESPN, thank you for the statistic. Uh, according to ESPN, every single game without fans will cost the MLB $640,000. Every single game, not every single day, every single game. So that's 15 games a day. We're taking out breaks, stuff like that. But 15 t- games a day times 640,000 times 80 games. That's a lot of money. So I don't want to minimize how much this is going to directly affect the owners and the MLB as a whole. This is going to have a huge, huge financial impact on them as well. So yes, it's easy to say they're billionaires. They don't deserve the amount of money that the players deserve. The players need the money more. They make a lot less. It's a different scale, but the owners will be losing so much money from this more money than we could actually possibly imagine. 640000 per game seems ridiculous. I want to clarify that stat, though. It's not per owner per game. It's for the MLB as a whole for a game. Yes, but where do you think that money is coming from for the MLB? A lot, a lot of it is the owners, but a good chunk of it is Major League Baseball itself, independent of the owners. Well, a lot well. of it's the TV contracts, and the TV contracts are mostly not nationally televised games. Most of those are coming, yeah, most of those are coming local, which means it's going straight into that team's revenue, which then goes to the MLB. So basically it is all running through the owner because most of the money that the MLB makes is from their TV contracts, from the local TV contracts, and then the nationally televised contracts. I want to bring up Mark Deshera's comments. He said this on ESPN's Get Up. Great television show, by the way. Love Dan Orlovsky on that show. (laughs) I hate it. Don't get me started on that. Don't get me started on that. But he said, players would need to understand if they turn this deal down and shut the sport down, they're not making a cent. I would rather make pennies on the dollar and give hope to people and play baseball than not make anything and lose an entire year off my career. The problem is you have people all over the world taking pay cuts, losing their jobs, losing their lives, frontline workers putting their lives at risk. These are unprecedented times, and this is one time I would advocate for the players accepting a deal like this. A 50-50 split of revenues is not that crazy. Continuing on to say, if I'm a player, I don't like it, but I'm going to do whatever I have to do to play, and that means taking this deal. So he echoes a lot of what you said uh, earlier about the situation and the times, and he's right, but I, I, st- I can't get past this. The, um, the anger is so misguided. I understand the argument, don't let Blake Snell talk, don't let Bryce Harper talk, let the MLBPA do their job and let them talk in the negotiations. I understand that argument, I buy it, but Blake Snell and Trevor Bauer, they did talk, and I'm never going to get mad at a guy for speaking up and saying what he believes in. And that's all these two players did, for the record. And on top of that, the owners are making so much more money. You talk about these millionaire players. A lot of them aren't millionaires. That's important to remember. There's a lot more Tyler Wades out there than there are Giancarlo Stanton's. Tyler Wade making the minimum MLB salary of around $500,000. You cut that in half already. That's around $200,000. And then you take 33% of that, and all of a sudden, they're making a very normal person's salary but trying to live like a baseball player. And they, then they get taxed in every state they play in. It's, they don't, they're not pocketing all that much, and the expenses to be a professional baseball player are a lot more than that. So to me, if you're going to get mad at someone, still keep it on the owners because they're going to be okay without this money. Is it going to be a struggle for a little bit? Yes. But Tyler Wade? I will give you this. Tyler Wade's going to struggle. I will give you this. I I give guys like Snell and Harper a little bit of credit because they're doing the talking for guys that can't do the talking themselves. Because they have a platform. Yes, yes. And that's very important to point out, especially for Snell. You mentioned this the other day. Snell's doing it for the Rays, 
who are one of the cheapest teams in the MLB, they're paying their guys less on average by far than other teams. So it's important for Snell to get his word out and back up his teammates a little bit. I understand that. The comments still, I think, are, you said misguided, is the anger. I think the comments are misguided because that information is being said in these meetings between the Players Association and the MLB front offices. This is getting relayed to the MLB. You said it. Let the MLBPA do their job. And I understand that, and I agree with it. That is what they're there for. But like I said, I'm never going to get mad at a guy for using his platform in order to fight for change. This has given Blake Snell an opportunity to go out there and say his thoughts and give his thoughts on a topic and a tough topic. So I'm not going to get mad at him for that, but I want to transition. So let's say we get 80 games. Is it a legitimate season? If the Yankees or the Braves, one of our teams, wins the World Series, what's the feeling there? Yes. Uh, It'll be more legitimate than the 2017 World Series no matter what. (laughs) Well said. Easy. Uh, I think of it in terms of the 94 season. We still look back at the 94 season that didn't have a World Series, and we look at players' stats, and we acknowledge that as a regular season. You know, Tony Gwynn with the ability to maybe crack 400 batting average that season, we still look back on that like, oh, what if? But that is still a season where he hit 397, and we still look at that and we acknowledge it for its greatness. 94 season is not disregarded and I think a season that actually starts in the second half and has a World Series will even get more credit than the 94 season did in the first place. Fans will be happy to see baseball no matter what and I will be happy to see it as well. I will not take any credit away from a season in which a champion is crowned. I'll second that and the world needs it to be honest with you. The world needs sports to bet on, sports to watch. Yes, in that order. Um... (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm joking, but um, in reality, yes, it's very legitimate because the players, they've worked just as hard for this season as they have for every other season, unless you're the Astros or the Red Sox, no. but don't get me started on that. Um, if I you're can, actually, if you're a player, if you're a pitcher, you might have worked harder for this season than any other season in your career. especially to stay healthy. Absolutely. Uh, between spring trainings and... I can't believe I'm using the words between spring trainings, but that's the reality <laughs> of where we are, right? So it's it's difficult for a pitcher, it's difficult for a position player too, to stay healthy, stay in shape because the toll that an MLB season where you're playing every single day, what it puts on the body, there's nothing like that across sports. It's different. It's a different kind of toll than football or basketball or the NHL, but it, it's absolutely a toll. And this season, I, I can't wait for it. I'm optimistic it'll happen. Um, and I won't take anything away from whoever wins it, assuming there's no... Assuming there's no scandal? Yes. Yeah. Here, I got one more question for you on uh, difficulty for pitchers to start this season. Do you see their games changing at all? Uh, like the game planning for pitchers, are? do you think managers are going to run their starting pitchers longer? Do you think more openers, fewer openers are going to be used? How do you think pitching might change because of the shortened season? I think you're going to see a lot of teams limit guys to five or six innings regardless of how they're pitching. You're not going to really? see any complete games. They're going to cut them off because they don't want to jeopardize those arms. The goal of this season is to make it through those 80 games in a position to get yourself into the postseason, and then you ratchet it up. And the postseason, by the way, under this proposal, with 14 teams instead of 12. So that makes even more, that puts an even bigger emphasis um, on the teams who you assume are going to be there, like the Dodgers, like the Astros. Um, You know, and I'm not going to jinx the Yankees by including them in that. There are two different risk factors for pitchers. One is the length of the season. So innings limit on you've seen it on guys like Strasburg in the past. So, so that's the flip side, right? Is they're not they don't have to be healthy for as long. Yes. But they still need to be healthy not only after this year, but into next year. And yep. you see issues running into that because this proposal, it could go into no, mid-November later than usual. Well, so uh, again, I just want to keep going on this point the two different risk factors for pitchers. One is the length of the season. So you get innings limits, but the other one is individual games, pitch count limits. And we see that on a game by game basis for every single starting pitcher. You're suggesting, I guess that the pitch count for each game is going to be lowered for pitchers. I would almost think it might go up because the other risk factor is pretty much nullified. Uh, Having, 80 games plus the playoffs instead of 162 games plus the playoffs. You're asking for a lot 
fewer risks there. You're asking for a lot fewer injuries for pitchers, in my opinion, that are endurance based. So I could see pitchers going 110, 120 pitches a little more often than they have been in the past. I don't think that's going to change at all. Uh, I don't think anyone's, you're not going to see anyone go 120 pitches in the MLB in 2020. You barely saw it in 2019. I'm not even sure if you did. Um, And I don't think that's going to change because teams are so worried about protecting their arms, right? So my prediction, there's going to be a game this year where Garrett Cole is perfect, perfect through five innings, thrown 60 pitches, and he still hit his innings limit. So he's going to come out. He's going to hand the ball over to Chad Green, Adam Adovino, someone like that, and hopefully they keep it as a Yankee fan and a baseball fan. But that's the reality of where we are because pitchers or teams, organizations don't want to jeopardize those arms. I think you're probably right. I just don't want you to be right. <laughs> I want to see it's pitchers sad, going for seven, eight innings again. It's a sad statement on 2020. I want to see more pitchers like Doc and his prime putting up 13 complete games a year. I want to see that again, but I, I do believe you're right, especially for this season. Uh, those pitch counts will be lowered and the innings limits will be lowered and everything like that. I agree. Too many injury risks going into a season when you had spring training two months ago, everyone's geared for regular season shape and just too many question marks. So I agree. In the history of baseball, there's never been anything like this with having to completely shut it down and then ramp it back up again this quickly. Never been anything like it. So I'm, I'm curious to see where we go from here. I'm Bobby, and I'll be bringing you guys fun facts for each podcast. Here's the first one. During the pandemic... Blake Snell won the first ever MLB The Show Players Tournament. So now it's time for the standout, where each week we will interview a standout athlete from lower Division One, Division Two, or Division Three. Um, and our goal with this is to spotlight the athletes who don't necessarily get the same airtime as those who go to UNC or Duke or LSU or Clemson, depending on what sport you're playing. But um, to highlight these guys who work really hard at their craft and continue to get better and better every day. So this week we have Dan Agate, who is a friend of ours. We played baseball with him growing up, and he pitches for the University of Rochester now. He's worked hard to get there. We're excited to have him in. And here's our previously recorded Zoom call with Dan. Can you talk about the jump from high school to college? Mm-hmm. And um, do you see any velo increases, things like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I first visited, um, they were building this state of the heart, state of sorry, state of the art, you know, facility for training. Um, there's a completely new building uh, called the Varsity House there um, at Rochester, and we uh, I saw that and I was like blown away by it. And then once I got there, I kind of got to reap the rewards. Um, I was in the best physical shape of my life, uh, my freshman sophomore years, and the weightlifting facilities were great. You know, I put on 30 pounds between my freshman and sophomore year, like 20 to 25 pounds of good weight. I would say there was some, some bad stuff in there, but I think that's when we started calling you like big chunky. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, it was a big change because my freshman year, I went up there and I was just 175 pound scrawny kid, you know, who had like a little bit of potential. Um, But he put on, I put on 30 pounds in my sophomore year, kind of saw that jump. Um, I saw a plus six mile per hour jump um, that year. And I got up into the, the upper eighties when we were down in, in Texas. And that was in uh, 2018. I mean, that was awesome. And I think that was, that's directly from being in that environment um, and having those facilities, having those, those strength coaches. Yeah, definitely a big, big jump there. That's one thing I appreciate about, you guys, you guys being D3 athletes, because it's all about the drive. It's all about the love of the game. Can you talk a little bit about that, uh, your decision to go the Division three route um, yeah. and what that means to you? Yeah, I mean, Division three isn't glamorous in, in many ways. I mean, there's some cool stuff and you get to play at some cool fields and stuff. But, I mean, you're not playing for the the acclaim, you know, of any anyone else. I really – when I play, I just I, – I chose – to go play baseball in college because it was something that I just wanted to do. Like simple as that. I just wanted to keep playing and I wanted to keep pitching um, and striking people out. I loved the feeling of it. Um, And that was about (laughs) it. I just wanted to go out there and, you know, put my dick on the table and just play. And I didn't get like, you know, you don't get money under the table, like 
maybe some of these like SEC big guys or like any of those big schools. We're just, yeah, we're just a, a group of normal guys who kind of nerdy like to play baseball. From just a standpoint of your performance, um, how would you describe the first two and change seasons of, yeah. uh, of play? I definitely saw your stats from freshman to sophomore year taking uptick. Um, but yeah. just curious what you think about it. Yeah, no, it's definitely up and down. I came in freshman year and I really hadn't thrown crucial innings to that level. Like I, I never felt the speed of the game quicken up in high school. I never felt that when I was uh, playing travel ball, getting recruited. It was never, it was always slow. I was always just like, just playing my game. And then you get to college and there are these, uh, these expectations. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from myself. And so freshman year was a tough ride. Like I, I sucked, plain and simple sucked. And, you know, it was a big adjustment period mentally, physically. But then sophomore year, um, I kind of figured it out a little bit. I had some really good older role, role models, um, some, some drafted guys and some, uh, some All-American guys. So really some, some great people to look up to. And I think it was a big mental learning curve. I learned a lot from those guys, a lot of meditation, a lot of, you know, things to just kind of get my head on straight before I pitched. And then sophomore year, I saw, like you said, a, a, big, a big difference and a big jump. And I became um, kind of the setup guy or, and that was kind of the role I filled. And then this year we played six games. Um, I threw in two of them. We played some good teams. You know, those appearances didn't go as well as I wanted them to. Um, and that's the tough, tough part about having a season cut short in six games because you don't play six games like in a season ever. You know what I mean? So that, that, that kind of, that's tough because I have to wait a whole nother year a whole nother year of like, you know, grinding and stuff. Um, but just as a, from a team standpoint, I loved where our team was at. And so I was able to kind of get a positive outlook on things and I felt good, but we came up against some, uh, some really good hitters. And, and at the time they were 20 games ahead of us in the schedule. They had played 20, 25 games at that time in California and they kind of hit me pretty good, but um, I'm hoping to uh, play some of those guys again next year. That's the plan. So let's talk a little bit about that season ending. What was the reaction around the team from you, from team leaders, coaches, when the season got canceled? It was a disaster. It was a nightmare. We were uh, in Rancho Cucamonga, California, which if you haven't been, don't go. It's a shithole. <laughs> it's like an hour east of LA in the middle of like the desert pretty much is the climate. And there's just like shopping malls and like hotels. It's a mess. It's not fun. And we were stuck at this hotel and we were walking out of the hotel to get on the vans to drive to our game um, against Occidental. And this was like middle of March. And uh, we were walking out of the hotel as we all kind of get a message on our phones that the rest of the school year was going to be online. And, you know, it doesn't take a smart person to realize what that means for, you know, a baseball program. And so we're driving to the, the Occidental game. And the Occidental game is in, you know, the, the, the hills, basically, of Los Angeles. It's like two minutes away from UCLA. It's an hour and a half drive. So we're stuck in the vans and we're all kind of, you know, going through those emotions. And, you know, you don't really know how to react, I guess. We didn't really know what was going to happen. We we're just going to try and play this one game and then figure it out. But everyone kind of knew what was going on. And we got out there. We played the game and it was a, it was a tough one. Um, we hung in for a few innings, but I think mentally no one was there. Like it was, you can, you can always tell, I mean, you guys played on many teams. Like you can tell when no one was there mm -hmm. and we were, we were empty. I went out and I threw in that game, you know, I threw decently well, better than the first for first appearance of the season for me, but I was so many things going through my head. And then after the game, our coach took us out in the outfield, you know, like you do after a, after a game or a series or whatever, just to have a quick chat. And uh, he brought the parents out as well. And, and some of the, some of the close like supporters that were with us and uh, basically told us um, that the season was canceled. You know, it was very emotional. I mean, he was choked up as soon as he said it. I mean, our seniors, I was uh, standing next to our seniors and some of our seniors just like broke down. I mean, I can't imagine cause they, they knew it was it. Like they knew mm -hmm. they were done. You know, a lot of them hadn't even, I think like half of them 
hadn't played in the game, so they didn't even get to play in their last baseball game. I mean, our coach was talking, and he started choking up a little bit. I could feel it coming in in, in me, and then I looked around, and I was uh, surrounded by the seniors, and, and three or four of them hadn't played that day, hadn't played a lot. So they didn't really get to finish out strong, you know, as people say at all. So, um, you know, it was, it was really tough, tough pill to swallow for those guys. And there were a lot of tears and a lot of hugs. And, yeah, I guess, I mean, we were in this, like, idyllic spot. I mean, this field was, it was incredible, this, this setup. I mean, it's on, like, a plateau in the, the hills of Los Angeles. And you're, like, looking over these great, you know, big houses and all this great stuff. And, you know, this beautiful place to play baseball. You couldn't ask for more. And then you get this news. So I think it was just a big, you know, shock and just kind of like a kind of punch in the gut. I was just going to say, it's one of those, for everyone around the country, I think it was one of those moments where when you got that email, it was something that you're going to remember where you were, what you were doing. I was announcing a baseball game, a D3 baseball game, and we got the email less than a minute after the last out was recorded, and that was the last game they played of that season. So similar, but just a crazy thing to think about, something you don't prepare for. We had phone calls coming into the dugout to our, our head trainer and our head coach, I mean, like, you got a couple that were, like, you heard the dial tone or whatever, and then obviously they switched it to vibrate, but, like, you had phones ringing in the dugout, like, the whole game. And coach was getting calls from, like, uh, all these coaches and administrators, um, and the trainer was getting calls from the, the, the health specialist from, from the university. So mm-hmm. there's just a, a major distraction. So I remember, yeah, I remember each, I remember each minute of that day, you know, top yeah. to bottom. I remember what happened because it's, you know, emotional time and your brain latches onto those emotional memories. So yeah, it's, it's vivid, not fun. That, that week leading up, was there sort of a feeling on the team of dread? Was there a feeling of, you know, what's coming or was there just a feeling of we'll take it day by day? How was the team reacting? You know, the, the worst thing about it was we had, did not expect it. We were so focused on what, just what we were doing. And we were, and our coaches, I think, did a very good job of shielding us from all the, the you know, the stuff from the outside coming in, um, and even from like our parent, like parents and friends, and you know anyone who could uh, contact us. There was really no noise about, you know, this disaster that was about to happen. So it, yeah, it kind of came out of nowhere. I would say on that day, um, it was kind of like a like Monday, Tuesday of that week. We kind of heard a little murmurs, but we were like, you know, we'll be fine. Like obviously it's an unprecedented thing. So we didn't know what to expect. We're like, we'll be all right. You know, maybe it'll be a little hiccup or whatever, but we'll be good. And then come Wednesday, Thursday, I think Thursday was the announcement. And, and it was, uh, it was a shock really. I, yeah, there was really no expectation. I guess actually I got one more question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would you have watched the XFL if it weren't canceled? <laughs> I loved the XFL. <laughs> I was a huge DC Defenders fan. Oh, yeah. Like first two weekends, man, I was all in. Cardale Jones, I was post up on the couch. <laughs> Cardale Jones. <laughs> Dude, yeah, he was our quarterback. No, I love the DC Defenders. Are they coming back at all or is it done done? I don't think so. XFL is totally folded. <laughs> oh, God. I would pay Cardale Jones personally to watch him play quarterback. All right. Well, thanks a lot, man. Thanks for joining thanks us. Yeah, of course. This was fun. Go get a sunburn on your nose because that's where the happiness is. And then also oh, yeah. get some stand between your toes because that's also where the happiness is. I'll take a walk on the beach and I'll think of you. That's cute. Thanks again, right. man. See you See later. See you guys. You know, I, I think what Dan talked about here is something that people around the country are experiencing. There's no playbook for this. You know, th- there's no there's no right answer about where to go from here, what to do, and the reality is, is yes, we lost the MLB, we lost uh, the NBA and the NHL, but we lost a lot more than that as well. And we lost the senior seasons and the junior seasons of people like Dan. Yeah. And hearing Dan talk about the D3 lifestyle, how hard he has to work, how he's gotten better every year while being in, you know, a top pre-med program. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of pressure to put on those guys. And seeing that season kind of just disappear for them is something that goes a little uncovered. So I'm glad we were able to talk about that with him for a bit. In 2019, there were 11 players on NFL rosters who played at the Division Three level. So each week we will have a topic that kind of differs from 
the three American large sports, MLB, NFL, and NBA. And Sorry, week, NHL. Yeah, Sorry. We're, we're including the <laughs> NHL. <laughs> there, there will be a timeout topic that is the NHL at some point. But this week, it's something a little more fun than the NHL. Yep. Sort of not really. Korean baseball. KBO. So the KBO has made its way to America because they are open and they're playing baseball and they're doing it on ESPN at 4 a.m. every single morning. Yep. And I have you have you seen any of the broadcasts? I haven't seen them live, but I've seen the replays that they do during the day. Oh man, they're painful. The day, they're painful. But <laughs> it's, I, I think I think at the same time, guys like Carl Ravitch and John Shambi doing this from uh, their homes, announcing a game millions of miles away or far it is, it's A, really difficult, but yeah. B, they deserve a lot of credit for what they're doing. And the first broadcast, I was awake for that, it was at 1 a.m. Um, Carl Ravitch and Eduardo Perez did a fantastic job filling time during a rain delay. <laughs> a rain delay of KBO, <laughs> right? And they were awesome. I forgot that happened in the first game. It was the first it, game it, back. It was very 2020. <laughs> <laughs> but the KBO is a little different than the MLB and... A lot of that starts with the bat flips. Bat flips <laughs> are something that MLB players and MLB pitchers like to get angry about, but not in Korean baseball. No, they embrace it. The, they embrace it. It's part of the culture. I wish they'd embrace it more in America. I mean, we go back and watch these YouTube videos of Korean baseball bat flips because they're awesome. They're, they're awesome hilarious. And they're fun. They're yeah. fun. They yeah, it's a game. Come on, it's a game. game. One thing, though, that the KBO is missing right now <laughs> from the fun element side of it is the no crowd. Their crowds go crazy there, oh, and yeah. no crowd has made these games almost unbearable to watch. So we're at a point in America where baseball is not the most popular sport. No, just, absolutely just not. Simply, sorry, baseball. You see a lot of crowds that aren't full. I, I mean, you think about Tropicana, you think about yeah, sure, Miami. Um, but what we're used to with games, Korean leagues. Well, so, so that, that's where I'm going. Yeah. Yes, it's a different game. Yes, the quality of baseball isn't the same, and we'll get to more on that in a second. But the amount that their fans love it, it's admirable, and it's where baseball was 20 years ago yeah. in America. Yeah. So um, our hope as huge baseball fans is we'll get back to that. But the point is, is I love watching some clips of their games every once in a while because the fans just go bonkers. It's like the playoffs uh, yeah. in Yankee Stadium where you hear the crowd roar. It's like nowhere else. But they do that on like a, in like a June game, regular season against a team eight games under five hundred. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to them. They go nuts. No, they're there to have fun. They're there to blow off some steam after work. So we watched some KBO the other day. We mentioned it, and um, as great as it was to have live baseball on the TV, <laughs> it made us sad. <laughs> <laughs> I have I I watched one game the other day where Carl Ravitch was on from his home. It's like really honestly just struggling through the broadcast. Not much to say. At one point the broadcast even says, like, due to time constraints, we're gonna skip ahead. And they skip ahead like five outs in the game. It's like, okay. Well, then it, they bring it was on a replay. It was a replay, just to clarify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Do that. But uh it, during the broadcast they brought in uh ex MLB player Darren Ruff to talk. <laughs> about his time in the KBO and what really made me realize that there's not much to watch here aside from the crowd not being present is the fact that Darren Ruff may be a KBO Hall of Famer <laughs> and Darren Ruff is known to me and to some of my friends as the Phillies rebuild <laughs> the, the well, years of their worst rebuild <laughs> you think about some of the guys in there we were talking about it earlier today. Preston Tucker oh, man. had like an awesome game yesterday. Hit three doubles, had seven RBIs, had a homer. And I know him as Braves pinch hitter. Exactly. <laughs> He's a pinch hitter for a bad Braves team. Oh, yeah. There's Aaron Altair, too. Aaron Altair. There's another, another classic Phillies, Phillies rebuild. rebuild. So I want to point out uh, Darren Ruff's stats, though. <laughs> KBO all time has a 980 OPS in the, I think, the three years he played there. That's incredible. So then I was like, wait, was he actually good in the MLB? No, he wasn't. Career 747 OPS in the MLB. And that's tainted by one year where he got kind of lucky in his first year. And after that, his average was about a 670 OPS. That's terrible. <laughs> it's like double A level baseball with no crowd. It's 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 not the same baseball that we're used to. And what all compared to double A, it's probably still a little bit better I than double A. It's close. That's true. It's close. Um, 
It's definitely a minor league level. It, it's it's a mi- I was gonna go further than that. <laughs> Independent <laughs> league. No, no, no. It, it's a minor league level. But watching with no fans is like watching. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Sometimes during the summer, the MLB Network would have like the U seventeen like Babe Ruth Championship. <laughs> it, it's like watching that. I've never there's seen no those. fan interaction. It's mediocre baseball and. It, it's sad that that's what we have to look forward to is watching an NC Dinos game and hoping we see Swole Daddy, their awesome <laughs> mascot. You know, it, like, like it, it's a little sad and it's very indicative of the times, I think. But yep, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. That was, your, that was your timeout. We'll get back to business now. Eric Thames revitalized his MLB career by going to play in the KBO, where he hit 124 home runs in three seasons. When he returned to the MLB in 2017, Thames hit 31 homers for the Milwaukee Brewers. Now we're going to move on to the breakout, where we will highlight a breakout performer from each week. And this week, it seems pretty obvious. It's not necessarily a performer. It's more of a performance. Um, We're going to talk about The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan 10-part documentary that has been airing on ESPN. I know I had a hard time getting Drew to watch it at first, but once he did... It's not that. It's that I was too lazy to fix my ESPN Plus account. <laughs> well, give me your thoughts once you did watch it. Okay. I mean, first thoughts are just wow. It's yes. just an incredible docuseries. <laughs> well said. Just, just <laughs> incredible. Uh, once I sat down to watch, I think I started at 10 p.m. one night. Started with episode one, obviously. And I cranked through four one-hour episodes like that. It was the easiest television watching I think I can remember. Uh, and the next day I woke up and as soon as I woke up, started five through eight, I'm, I got caught up pretty much within 12 hours. It's incredible. I mean, you agree. It's an incredible doc series. It's the greatest sports documentary of all time. Yes. Because it's just, it's unprecedented access to one of the best teams in the history of the NBA. Yep. And not only that, one of the best teams with some of the best personalities in the history of the NBA. Oh, you're talking about personalities. No, you have plenty of that on the Bulls. I mean, think yeah. about it. Like, Pippen was his own guy, but Jordan and Rodman were different level personality-wise. Uh, and then you had Steve Kerr, who's a big personality in and of himself, especially now that he's coaching the Warriors, another great team in NBA history. Um, I love the GM beef, too. That's- well, it, it's amazing. The, I just don't understand... Jerry Krause's need and I, who knows how true this is this is the way it's edited we should keep that in mind but Jerry Krause's need for recognition literally drove him to break up a team with 34 year old Michael Jordan 30 year old Scottie Pippen somewhere around there and Dennis Rodman was getting up there but- I mean I mean seriously it's represented that way in the documentary but maybe it's just how well the documentary was done I can't see it another way it looks I, like that's you. exactly what Kraus did. I'm with you. And it's it's absolutely remarkable to think that a GM in today's age where we've learned that championship windows are so small would break up a team like that. But and, and with Phil Jackson, just one of the best telling Phil Jackson like you're out. Exactly. I'm, I'm tired of you. That you only win championships for us, but I don't like you. And I wonder the way it was edited, and I've, I've I saw this somewhere that there were rumblings of this. We can blame Jerry Krause all we want. Jerry Reinsdorf, who's owner of the Bulls, is actually who we should blame. But I mean, who, who are, who are you going to blame for six finals? <laughs> well, <laughs> for six that's NBA the, titles. That's the thing about right. Jerry Krause is he deserves he the credit. Job done. He deserves credit. He does. But GMs don't get the same credit as players. And no, and they never will, and they never should. Jerry Krause couldn't accept that. That's the way it was framed in the documentary, but it's pretty remarkable to think about that he literally pushed a 34-year-old Michael Jordan who had just led the league in scoring to retire. Yep. I I mean, you you look at that last year. It wasn't as good as some of his years before, but he still had 28.7 points per game, 1.7 steals, five rebounds. You know, like, he he was still Michael Jordan. He's still Michael Jordan. He was still Michael Jordan, arguably still in his prime. And it's it baffles me, to say the least, but... um, I don't know. Who who knows? But the point is, the documentary is amazing. And for us, revitalize the debate that we've had in the past between Michael Jordan and LeBron James. And we both agreed Jordan, greatest of all time, best of all time, however you want to shake that, Jordan's going to win it. Right? We agree on that? Yeah. Yeah. So 
we thought that before the doc, we think it after the doc, and the only thing that did was confirm it. But where we disagree is about who was given the better physical gifts, who was the better athlete, some stuff like that. So I'll let you go first. Yeah, I mean, Jordan is regarded as one of the greatest athletes of all time and should be. But one thing we were discussing earlier was how they can finish at the rim. And I think the way that LeBron can drive into the lane and carry four people on his back and finish with five people swatting at him, and he's basically a point guard. At this point in his career, he is a point guard. Agreed, agreed. But I would say he's played most of his career as a guard, and he can just take everyone to the rim with him and just bowl over everyone. And then if he wants, he can post up at center and finish at the rim like that. And Jordan really couldn't do any of these moves. One point you argued earlier was that... uh, Jordan was craftier when he finished at the, around the rim, which is fair. But Jordan had to be craftier because people wouldn't just get out of the way. Now, you said people getting out people, of the way. That was that was because of the era, but I'll, I'll let you finish. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> you, you said people getting out of the way uh, is a sign that nobody plays defense anymore. And really, I think it's the intimidation that is LeBron James's athleticism. And I think it's an, on an entirely different level than Michael Jordan's athleticism and strength combination. The strength that LeBron has is unmatched, in my opinion, for any guard in NBA history. I understand what you're saying. I do. But why do they move out of the way when James Harden's coming down the lane? You know, it's the same thing. Harden is not more athletic than Jordan. He's definitely not more athletic than LeBron. I agree with you. LeBron, physical specimen, could play wide receiver in the NFL, could play tight end in the NFL, whatever he picks. I understand that. But... The crafty finishing of Michael Jordan, greatest of all time, I would take him at the rim over LeBron or anyone else any day, first of all. Second of all, you mentioned posting up. Jordan's back-to-the-basket fadeaway game is one of the best we've seen in NBA history. And you think about guys like Kobe, guys like LeBron, who did that turnaround fadeaway first? There have been turnaround fadeaways. There's been the sky hook for years but who did that little turnaround well, that, in, paved in the the way, that paved the way for Kobe and paved the way for LeBron? It was Jordan. In the doc, Kobe actually recognizes that. And I'm actually kind of surprised they had coverage of Kobe. Uh, so they must have recorded this a while back. Uh, well, but, uh, he said it on Scott Van Pellet after last night. He did over 100 interviews, the director. Wow. So okay. this has been going on for, for three, years, four years. I'm sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, Kobe acknowledged though he finished episode 10 on Thursday last Thursday so that's it's pretty cool yeah (laughs) Kobe did acknowledge that all of the stuff that he had in his arsenal in his game he got from Michael he said that in the doc like people would ask him Kobe how do you do it and he'd just direct them straight to Michael so that post fade sure but I'm not talking about the post fade on a guy that's evenly matched against MJ I'm talking about the fact that I think LeBron could go up against any center in the league, post up, and score. And I don't think the same could be said of MJ or Kobe or another player that's a guard that has that post fade. It's a different kind of post fade because he has the strength to beat the big guys, just the workhorses I, I down I agree low. with you, but it's a dumb argument. I'll tell you why. Think about the centers back in Jordan's day. Right, so yes, Ewing, Jordan, Jordan, <laughs> Jordan is six six. LeBron is six eight. Different physical gifts there for sure. LeBron has maybe the biggest shoulders, the biggest shoulders that I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah, but um, besides the point, no, Michael Jordan couldn't have posted up on Patrick Ewing, Hakeem Olajuwon, or pick one, David Robinson, Tim Duncan. Right, the list goes on. Yes, Michael Jordan couldn't post up against those guys, but neither could LeBron. I disagree there. Neither could LeBron. I disagree. LeBron, LeBron had J.J. Barea guarding him in that Mavs series. Okay. And he would get switches. You, you want to know the other thing, too, for the record? And I'm going to say this. This is the problem with the modern NBA, right? They switch on every single screen. All offenses are now are giving the ball to LeBron and running screens to where Steph Curry or Rajon Rondo, if you want to go back to the Heat days, is guarding him, and he can do whatever he wants on those guys, right? Back then, back when Jordan played, guys were fighting through screens, and guys weren't moving out of the way, no matter who it was, when he came down the lane. I understand your sentiment about the screens, but as a 
as an offensive scheme, that's just smart basketball. Well, if, it's if, smart basketball if the defense is just going to lay over and die, which is what defenses do but in I also 2020. Think, I also think it's incredibly unfair to say that LeBron only matches up against Rajon Rondo or uh, name a point guard. Name like a tiny point guard that plays no defense. Steph Curry, go, go sure. Wa- go watch the clips from I think the playoffs. It's There's a lot of switching there. Sure, but I think it's unfair to say that he only matches up against guys like that. That's not what I said. You're taking credit away from the fact that he can drive with four people guarding him to the rim and actually finish for an N one. And Jordan could do the same thing, but in a much different way. And I think the intimidation that LeBron brings to the table adds an element to his game that Michael never had. And I think that's important to point out. Here's my response to this debate. Go watch the clip of Michael Jordan dunking over Dikembe Mutombo. I've seen that. (laughs) Right? Dikembe didn't move. Dikembe has second or third most blocks of all time. I'll have to check that. But he's, he's up there in regards to blocks. He's in the Hall of Fame because of how good of an interior defender he is and was. Correct? Yes. He didn't move out of the way. Because that's how those those guys were wired. Akeem was the same way. Patrick Ewing was the same way. They did move out of the way. And what did Jordan do? He went through him. Go watch the clip. You want to know the difference between today and yesteryear, right? And I know I sound like a 60-year-old man when I talk like this, but it is true. No one plays defense anymore. There's a reason those games were in the 60s and today's games are in the 120s. Part of it is the obsession with the three-point shot, which I actually enjoy, but part of it is the lack of defense. We, we can agree on that. I can agree on that until we get to the playoffs. And I think in the playoffs, teams play defense. And it, it shows. The scores are lower. Yes, yes. Okay, I'll give you that. But either way, <laughs> go watch that clip or go watch the clip of Scottie Pippen just yamming all over Patrick Ewing and then stepping over. You got to see it. Seen it, yeah. Right? Um, go watch those clips. No one moved out of the way. That's not no, what the, they did. The, the bigs didn't move out of the way. That's not what they did. But I don't think, I don't really see bigs moving out of the way unless it's like a clear poster about to hit them. But that didn't happen back then. Scottie Pippen was kind of, he's, you know what, honestly, similar to LeBron in a lot of ways. Um, he's kind of, LeBron is kind of Scottie Pippen on steroids. Yeah. Look, I, I get the... I I get what you're saying. The game was tougher back then. People didn't move out of the way. But I also think that's a little bit of a recency bias. It's so easy to say watching current NBA that nobody plays defense and everyone gets out of the way because we see it happen sometimes. But we didn't watch full games from the early 90s like we watch games now. There are definitely players that moved out of the way of a running down the lane Michael Jordan. It definitely happened of a... Coming down the lane, ready to yam on your face, Scottie Pippen. Fair there enough. are players that moved out of the way, guaranteed. No, you did not see Patrick Ewing move out of the way in the playoffs because that's different. But you're not going to see many players just move out of the way of a running down the lane LeBron James in the playoffs. It's too competitive. Everyone's going at each other. And LeBron has the ability to finish with as many people as he has around him in the lane, no matter what the circumstances He'll put it in, and he'll get the N one. The other thing to a level do, that I've never seen a player do ever in the NBA. The other thing he'll do is whine about it after. And you that's know what? the NBA you know now, what? though. That's it is, the NBA. It is. It is. But if you know what, you watch those clips. The rules have changed. Literally, the rules yes. as to what's a foul and everything has changed to help the offensive player um, in 2020. So a different discussion. But I think that's part of the reason you run into these lack of defense because guys don't want to pick up three fouls really quickly. So so I will say there is a reason for it but at the same time right like you think about what happened back then you think about the physicality on defense the jordan rules and things like that you want to talk about physicality between the two let's talk about the defense all right because that is to some degree being physical michael jordan a considerably better defender than lebron james lebron gets credit for his chase down blocks and his athleticism don't get me wrong that's hard to do that's not only athleticism but that's skill and that's timing Right, but you look at Jordan and the savvy and the defensive ability to just knock the ball away whenever he wanted to. I don't know why he didn't do it more, to be honest with you, because he could do it whenever he wanted to. And or what happens now is you, you see these guys just let uh, LeBron turn his back to them and back him all the way in. It, it, it's, it's not the same as it used to be. And you, it's starting to take over the college game, too. 
You know, the five years ago, Marcus Page was fighting through screens at Carolina. Cole Anthony didn't fight through a single screen all year. I hope he does great in the NBA. He was fun to watch, but he didn't fight through a single screen all year. So I'm just pointing that out. The change in the game has benefited physical guys like LeBron. It would have benefited Jordan. Were he playing today? One thing I saw this year in the shortened season that was really eye-opening to me was the Lakers-Clippers game where it was kind of clear that LeBron and Kawhi were going to go at each other. There was a lot of build-up to this game, and LeBron wants to maintain the battle that. battle for L.A. Yeah, battle for he LA. wants to maintain not only the vision that he is the king in the NBA, but also Battle of L.A., yeah. And in that game, I saw Kawhi trying to go at LeBron and LeBron just standing his ground stronger than I've seen a defensive player stand his ground in a long time. You have very tenacious defensive players in the NBA right now, like Pat Bev, but it's a different kind of defense. That's like the handsy get up in your face kind of defense. LeBron was just, you couldn't get past him. You physically could not get by him. And that's Kawhi Leonard. We're talking about. That's one of the best players in the NBA right now. He could not get past LeBron because LeBron was just too strong. He would dribble right into him and LeBron would just stand there like a concrete block. Now, Jordan has the game where he can use his hands to pick the ball out of the players all the time. Hang on, give me one second. Give me one second. Yes, they're different players. And that's what I'm saying. The strength that LeBron had combined with his athleticism makes him a beast that we've never seen before. MJ had the quickness that LeBron lacks a little on the defensive side. I think they both have great IQ on defense. LeBron gets a little lazy because he's not as quick. He's not as fast, but he is strong. And people don't give him enough credit for the fact that when he really wants to stand his ground defensively, he will stand his fucking ground. He will not move. I'm not going to argue that if LeBron James and Michael Jordan were to arm wrestle in their primes, LeBron James would win. But LeBron James was blessed with 6'8", and like I said, the biggest shoulders of all time. So I don't think it's fair to dock Jordan for playing into his strengths. I'm not. And doing the things he was good at by using his quickness to his advantage and getting all those steals. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that I think LeBron is a strength beast that we've never seen in the NBA combined with a level of quickness. That strength and quickness combination is something we've never seen before. That's all I've been saying from the beginning. Enter Giannis Antetokounmpo. Yeah, right? Well, uh, defensively, sure, and offensively, sure, but he's got to add a shot. We can't talk about him until he adds a shot and wins a ring. It's, it's fair, but LeBron didn't have the shot when he first came in the league. He did. He did. That, that's a mm, reputation mm. thing. From that's It's a, it's a percentage That's thing people too. saying that from high school, but as soon as he entered the game, I mean, you could see in his first game when he put up 25. He shot he was, 29% his rookie year. I'm just saying. It, it took from the field? Second, from three. Oh, no. from Oh, I'm saying jump shot. I mean, Giannis doesn't really have a jump shot. Giannis, Not a three ball. A jump shot. Giannis will get a jump shot. He doesn't need it. We're getting off topic. But. True. He doesn't need the jump shot yet, just for the record. Just saying, that's a different beast right now. We can't talk about him yet. He's not ready to be in that conversation. Agreed. Here's how I'll wrap this up. They're very different players because they were blessed with very different physical gifts. So it's hard to compare them in terms of their strength and their quickness because Jordan, two inches shorter, is a lot quicker, and LeBron, two inches taller, is a lot stronger. Fine, we can agree on that, but... I think Jordan has made better use of his physical gifts than LeBron has, but that that goes to the greatest of all time debate, and we agree on that. So we'll we'll leave it be for now. Even 18 years after his retirement, Michael Jordan has the highest net worth of any athlete with $2.1 billion. That's all for this week, guys. Thanks so much for joining us. So great to get this podcast off the ground. And make sure to join us next time. We got standout guest Andrew Seliskar joining us for a special interview in his quest for the Tokyo Olympics. You've been listening to Fallout. Thanks for tuning in.